please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 15. We will be in our regular exposition in the Gospel of Matthew again this morning, which will take us to Matthew 5, in verse 8, which is the passage I plan to expound this morning. But I want us to begin by reading Matthew 15, verses 1 through 20, which is very much connected to the theme of our text in Matthew 5, 8. So if you would, turn to Matthew 15, 1 through 20, and then maybe put a finger in Matthew 5, which we'll read from in just a moment. Please follow along as I read Matthew 15, beginning in verse 1. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Verse 10, And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Now please turn back to Matthew chapter 5, and there we'll read simply verse 8 which is our text for this morning. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you are the eternal God. You are the Ancient of Days. We have read of you from of old and how you came and revealed yourself to your people. And we have experienced in our own lives, in our own hearts, that you have revealed yourself to us through your word and through your spirit. We long to see you and to know you as you are. Please, Lord, give to us that purity of heart with which we shall see you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Talking back to purity culture 
Rediscovering Faithful Christian Sexuality. Hashtag Church 2, how purity culture upholds abuse and how to find healing. Pure, inside the evangelical movement that shamed a generation of young women and how I broke free. The Purity Culture Recovery Journal, love your body and embrace your sexuality. Inundated, redeeming the untruths of dating and purity culture in a broken world. These are the titles of recently published books that critique a culture that emerged in evangelical circles in the late 20th century surrounding the issue of sexual purity. A culture, these books purport, that has proved to be harmful for women as well as for men. I mention these titles to you not to engage their arguments or to assess their relative value. I mention them simply to highlight two things. First, when evangelical Christians or even secular people for that matter think about the issue of purity, they almost always cast it in terms of sexual purity. Purity is often discussed exclusively in relation to sex. If I ask you this morning, have you been walking in purity? you would likely assume I'm asking you whether or not in your conduct you have been sexually pure. You would not assume that I'm asking you whether or not you've told a lie this week, or whether or not you've been greedy or covetous. Of course, in response to this, we must acknowledge that purity in the Bible encompasses far more than the issue of sex. We will be limited in our ability to grasp what Jesus is teaching us in Matthew 5, verse 8, if we think only in terms of sexual purity. Of course, this will include the idea of sexual purity, but it's a far broader category than simply sexual purity. Purity in the Bible encompasses the whole of the human person and has especially to do with the heart out of which all conduct, speech, and actions proceed. In the first instance, purity has not to do with whether or not you hold hands or kiss before marriage, but more to do with whether or not you are upright in heart. It may shape your attitude toward holding hands or kissing before marriage, but it has first to do with what is true of your heart and whether or not their righteousness resides. But secondly, I mention these titles to highlight how the word purity itself is coming more and more to be associated either with legalistic and fundamentalist religion on the one hand, or perhaps, and far worse, abusive and oppressive church cultures on the other. Because purity has often been spoken of in an exclusively sexual way, and because what such purity actually requires has been misrepresented and misapplied in some circles, there now exists a whole Christian subculture that describes itself as being anti-purity, not necessarily because it's objecting to a biblical idea, but because it's objecting to a perceived distortion of a biblical idea in evangelical circles. This morning, I don't mean to arbitrate such debates and choose between the sides, but what I wish to emphasize is this. Whatever may be true of so-called evangelical purity culture or anti-purity culture, The Bible regards true moral purity as one of the most wonderful things in the world. And it moreover teaches us that it is to be earnestly sought after by all those who love God and who love the truth and who love 
righteousness. Now, there are a few ideas that are, that are at the heart of what biblical purity is. A few ideas that I think help us understand what purity is. I'll just state them briefly. According to Scripture, to be pure, first of all, is to be clean. That's the nearest synonym. That's the nearest idea to what purity is. To be pure is to be clean, especially morally and spiritually. To be clean in your heart, to be clean in your morals, to be clean in your conduct, to be clean in your speech, to be morally cleansed, to be pure. That's the nearest idea. Second idea, to be pure is to be unmixed. Is to be unmixed or undiluted or undivided. We speak of purity in this way in our own culture. Uh, the Bible talks about wine that is unmixed. Unmixed wine is undiluted wine. We speak of jewelry or diamonds that have a particular purity ranking or score. Uh, apparently, there is no such thing as a completely pure diamond, but you can rank how pure a diamond is uh, down a particular scale. I'm wearing a wedding ring. This is, I think, white gold. It has a certain purity ranking, and that says how much is it diluted by other materials and things like that. Uh, some of you might be of the generation uh, in the, I suppose, 50s, 60s, 70s, if you grew up in those decades. Uh, remember Quaker Oats? The recognizable Quaker on the outside of the Quaker Oats container, it would say on there, guaranteed pure. And the whole ad campaign for Quaker Oats was to say, this is the purest possible oat. This has been harvested in the purest possible way. This is 100% pure. I guess there's some process by which you would get impure oats in your cereal or your oatmeal or whatever, but they were trying to emphasize to their consumers, you can be sure this is the purest possible oat you can be eating. And what are they saying? It's unmixed. It's undiluted. So when applied to us, God's people who are to be pure, it means we're to be unmixed in our hearts, in our loves, in our affections, in our devotion, in our worship. We are to give undiluted devotion and allegiance and worship to God, unmixed with any corrupt and wicked thing. A third idea that's at the heart of purity. It's to be clean. It's to be unmixed. Thirdly, it is to be simply holy and acceptable to God. It's to be holy and acceptable to God. Much of the furniture in the tabernacle and later the temple and the various accessories of the temple were to be made of particularly pure materials, emphasizing the holiness and the acceptableness of those materials in the worship of God. Well, we as vessels in the new covenant, we are to be pure, meaning that we're to be holy and thereby to be acceptable to God. So when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, He's saying, blessed are those who are morally and spiritually clean at the inmost center of their being. Blessed are those who are singularly devoted to pleasing God with hearts and motives that are unmixed and undiluted by sin and unrighteousness and uncleanness. And blessed are those who live a life holy and acceptable to God, pure in their conduct and in their manner of life. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. To better understand this text, I propose we pursue the following outline. Four points this morning to understand this idea of purity and what it is that Jesus is commending and calling us to. Four points. Number one, we'll consider the problem of purity, and we'll spend more time there than anywhere else. Number two, the provision of purity. Number four, the practice of purity. Excuse me, number three. And number four, the prize of purity. So the problem of purity, the provision of purity, the practice of purity, and the prize of purity. Consider with me first the problem of purity. What is the fundamental problem 
facing humanity? How would you answer that question? It seems the kind of question someone would ask. People think about that kind of question. What's the fundamental problem facing humanity? For many, the fundamental problem facing humanity is a problem of man's environment. It's one of externals. I am fundamentally a good person. Human nature is fundamentally good. The problem is the corrupting influence of my environment, of society, of culture. This is famously the view of the Enlightenment philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, who, who first argued that who we are in terms of identity, at the core of who we are, is our native desires and impulses and intuitions about ourselves. Who are you? It's what you intuit about yourself within. It's what you desire. You are your feelings. And so whatever you sense within, all you have to do is manifest that outwardly to the world. But who you are, fundamentally, is not an identity given to you. It arises from your own native desires and intuitions and feelings about who you are. The next step that Rousseau would take is he would argue that those native desires and feelings that you feel within you, that arise spontaneously, unbeckoned, they are who you are, and who you are is pure. Who you are is good. Human nature fundamentally is good and right and pure. And now here's the next step. What creates all the problems and fracture in society is the corrupting influence of our environment. So I am fundamentally good, I am what I feel, I am what I desire, and the, the reason there's alienation and dislocation in the world is because your environment, society, your culture has a negative influence on you. It tries to restrain your native desires, it might try to cause you to conform to society standards or something like that. You are fundamentally good, environment is fundamentally bad and corrupting. You are fundamentally pure in what you feel about yourself. And society has a fundamentally corrupting influence that brings a kind of impurity into our experience. Well, not to turn this into a philosophy class, but this theory obviously fails at a number of points. First of all, society and culture are nothing other than the aggregate of a bunch of human people, a bunch of individuals. If you want to know what human nature is like, all you have to do is look at society writ large. There you know what is going on in individual human people. There is no society or culture or environment without you and me. We are society. And therefore, if society is corrupting us, that means we are corrupting us. Maybe not so impure as we might have thought. But secondly, I think it's simply observable. It's empirical. We can see this. That evil, or maybe you don't like that word, maybe moral wrong or malbehavior, the Bible would use the word sin, whatever you wish to call it, is endemic to human nature, meaning it's natural to human nature, not alien to human nature. In other words, it arises from within. It's not imposed from without. What ties humanity together throughout all time is not its inherent goodness, but its propensity inevitably for thousands of years towards sin and wrong and malbehavior. I joke about this sometimes, but I do think it's just demonstrably, observably true that children routinely conduct themselves in ways that would be considered antisocial and even criminal if such behavior were perpetuated into adulthood. 
And just think of your own childhood, think of your kids, your grandkids. Kids will do things to each other. They're not taught to transgress. They're not taught to do wrong. They will do things and perpetrate actions that if they did those same actions in adulthood, they would be behind bars, which is part of the sort of ludicrous nature of this whole transgender discussion we're having nowadays. It's in the media every night, it seems. It's on social media. It's everywhere. There was recently a, a clip that was played around a number of places of where a parent was saying that my job as the parent is to believe everything my child tells me and to affirm what they tell me about themselves and to endorse it. Well, you could see how transparently ludicrous that idea is. The little Oliver Shively was at my house this week. He was wearing a bucket on his head. The bucket was like from a plant, like a potted plant, but it's a plastic one. He had it on his head. It had a little cutout so you could see his face. And I said, whoa, who are you? And he said, I'm an orc. And as a responsible adult in his life, I explained to him, no, you're not an orc. And if you're going to pretend to be something, pretend to be a good guy. You want to be like Aragorn or Legolas or something like that. Well, what, what is environment doing for little Oliver in that moment? It's actually exercising a wholesome influence on him. We recognize this, that part of the purpose of parents and grandparents and education and the state even is to exercise a good influence on our children to move them and orient them toward the good and the true and the beautiful, however that's defined. Human nature is not fundamentally good. More than that, human nature is not fundamentally improving. Now, the 20th century, if you're familiar with 20th century history, it's sort of the doctrine of progressivism. Uh, this idea that with innovations in technology and medicine, and new strides in education and in social programs. Now we will reach, the indomitable human spirit will reach new heights and we'll find our way to utopia and to a new kind of existence that will be free from so many of the evils that have ailed us for thousands and thousands of years. Well, I just encourage you, you don't have to be a great historian to know what the last hundred years has wrought. Uh, in all of history, some of the most untold atrocities and murders and wars and genocides have been perpetuated in this age of enlightenment, this age of progress. Certainly technology has advanced, medicine has advanced, we could say education has advanced, social programs have advanced, the human spirit has not advanced. With all the new medicines we have, all the new technology we have, it seems we only have discovered new ways to harm each other. Social media has not revealed our inherent goodness. It's revealed our inherent depravity. And the strides we make in technology and in economics and in finance, it's only telling us the same story in a new tone of voice. That fundamentally at the core of who we are, in our hearts, we are broken. We are sinful. We are impure. All of our discoveries in the arenas of history of psychology and sociology do not support Rousseau's view. No changing of our environment will solve the problem. But this is a Christian church and this is a Christian sermon and we're not interested primarily in what is observable in the arenas of psychology and sociology. We're interested most in what God reveals in His Word. And when we look to His Word and ask the question that I began this discourse with, what is the fundamental problem facing humanity? The answer we find is this. The fundamental problem facing humanity is that God is holy and we are not. He is 
the embodiment of perfect moral purity. And we are impure. He is perfectly righteous. We are natively evil and unrighteous. And what's more, and here's why this is such a problem, He demands from us perfect moral purity if we are to escape His judgment and dwell with Him forever in perfect paradise. He's holy, and we're sinful, and we can't stand before Him in our sins. What we need is to be pure in heart. But that is exactly our problem. Naturally, we are not pure in our hearts, not natively. Our hearts are naturally wicked and wayward, not pure and righteous. Listen to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says this, the tragic fallacy of the last hundred years has been to think that all man's troubles are due to his environment, and that to change the man, you have nothing to do but to change his environment. This is a tragic fallacy. It overlooks the fact that it was in paradise that man fell. It was in a perfect environment that he first went wrong. So to put man in a perfect environment cannot solve his problems. Our tragic failure to realize this is responsible for the state of the world at this moment. The trouble is in the heart. And the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful. That, Lloyd-Jones says, is our problem. In hundreds of places in the Bible, this problem is manifest. Listen to these words from Psalm 24, which is kind of the setup, okay? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. How can God dwell with man? Who can stand in his presence? Who can know him? We could say even be his child. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Isaiah says this in Isaiah 6, you remember the scene there that Isaiah is brought into the throne room of God, and he sees the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe fills the temple, this awesome apocalyptic vision of the glory of God. And there's the seraphim flying from place to place, and what's the seraphim saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the earth is filled with your glory. What's Isaiah's reaction in such a setting? He doesn't bustle in there all chummy and conversational with God. No, he says, verse 5, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, impure lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, it's the holiness of God and His native impurity that causes this crisis for him, and it would take the seraphim grabbing a coal from the celestial altar of God and putting it to his lips in order to allow him even to speak in God's presence. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's one problem, but here's another problem. I, the Lord, search the heart. Heart's deceitful. It's sick. Who can understand it? Not you or me. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. 
Again, we see it is the sinfulness and impurity of the human heart before a just, pure, and holy God who demands moral perfection. That is our fundamental problem. Not my environment, not my lack of education, not my parents and all the ways they messed me up, not the limits of my social situation, not the corrupting influence of external things, but the poisonous and impure well within. Friends, the best solution this world can offer you is a kind of temporary palliative care. Do you know what palliative care is? Palliative care is the kind of care you give someone when you can't treat the disease. You can only treat the manifesting symptoms for a time. The best thing, all the addictions of this world, all the pleasures of this world, all the distractions of this world can do for you is to give you a kind of temporary palliative care that can distract you for a moment and relieve you for a moment from the symptoms of the disease, but cannot confront and address the disease itself. The underlying cause of all of our sorrows all of our woes, which is, of course, an impure heart. And all those distractions and all those palliative medications can do for you is to distract you for a moment from the fact that you will soon be a corpse. You will soon be dead. You will soon perish. You will soon be ruined because they cannot address the underlying cause. Friends, your problem in mind is not with externals, it's with internals. It's with our hearts. It's with the center of our being. All of our problems come from within where individual sin and ungodliness dwells. We are morally impure at the core of our being. And that impurity is not imposed upon us from without. It resides within. And out of that impurity, we speak and think and act. All the sorrows and sufferings of this life, all the sin and wickedness and lawlessness we see is merely a manifestation of human nature and the human heart writ large. It is a manifestation of our native impurity. This is what I'm calling the problem of purity. That is, the obstacle between us and God is our sin and our failure to possess the requisite purity needed to dwell with Him. Now, if you know the Scriptures well, maybe you're already making the connection. This is the principal reason why there was such an emphasis in the Old Testament on purity and on cleansing. Just think for a moment, you who are familiar with the Old Testament, think of all the ceremonial laws of the Jews, all the sacrifices, all the blood, all the ritual cleansings, all the external signs and symbols and rituals that were to convey something of the purity and cleanness that God required. The Jewish mind from Moses all the way till Jesus' day was dominated by the distinction between what was clean and what was unclean, what was pure and what was impure. This was a daily concern from the moment you woke up. It pertained to food. It pertained to furniture. It pertained to the cups and plates that you used. It pertained to your clothes, to your hands, to who you could marry to your people, your whole nation. All of this emphasis on purity, because if you weren't clean, if you weren't pure, you couldn't approach God. Who could dwell in the holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. But of course, all of these externals, 
All those ceremonial laws were simply symbols and pointers to the internal reality that was needed, which is, of course, a clean heart. Not just dirt off of my hands, but sin off of my heart. Not just grime off of my plate, but purity in my spirit. That's what God was always after, purity in the inmost soul. We see this in David's great psalm of confession in Psalm 51 as he tries to process his sins that he's committed against Uriah and against Bathsheba and against the nation and most of all against God. He understood the matter was not simply about performing external rituals but about what was true in the heart. When David finds himself in sin, he doesn't grab some rosary beads. He doesn't go to the confessional. He doesn't say some Hail Marys. He goes to God, and he deals with the impurity in his heart. He says this, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Verse 16, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. If I could do some acts of penance, some cleansing rituals, I'd give it. But that's not what you're after. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The Lord Himself indicted the Israelites because, as He says in Isaiah 29, 13, this people honors me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. I don't care if you obey all these external laws, if your heart is impure. What good is external conformity to purity laws and the performance of ritual cleansings if the heart remains corrupt and unclean? This was always what the religion of the Old Testament taught. The religion of the Old Testament is not merely a religion of the hands, it was a religion of the heart. So important we get this right, people often misunderstand the Old Testament. They think that really if you just did these external things, that's back in those times how God considered you right with Him. That's not true at all. The Old Testament reveals a God who is interested in who we are in our souls, who we are in our hearts. And this, friends, this is crucial, is precisely what the Pharisees of Jesus' day misunderstood. They thought of purity exclusively as a matter of external conformity to purity laws. The issue was never that they properly understood the Old Testament, but exactly that they misunderstood it. So when you read Jesus critiquing the Pharisees and pronouncing woes over them, that's not because they've embraced Old Testament religion. It's because they've distorted Old Testament religion. They didn't understand it. They didn't realize that what God was most interested in was not the dirt under their fingernails, but the sins in their heart. They missed that, and they misled many through that error. They never comprehended the heart of the Old Testament. To them, the Old Testament was entirely about external conformity to religious prescriptions, not true heart religion. It was about the purity of bowls and basins, not the purity of the heart. And so Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 29, woe to you. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. 
You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I just want to say, I don't know if someone here is struggling with this, but but perhaps you have been in religious circles that acted like the Pharisees, that were marked by hypocrisy. Okay, you can give up on those people, and you could agree, okay, that, that's not true religion. But what you must recognize is they are conveying to you a distortion of Christianity. Christianity is heart religion. And if you've seen hypocrisy in the church, or hypocrisy in your family, or hypocrisy in Christian circles, that's exactly what it is, hypocrisy. But it's not true heart religion. Jesus spoke out against such people. Jesus pronounced woes and anathemas on such people. What you need to do is to do something with Jesus and what He says about true heart religion. And this is what He says, Matthew 15, verse 10, we read it earlier. He called the people to Him and said to them, hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person? For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. I've joked about this before. There's a kind of folk religion that you will get in certain fundamentalist circles, the height of whom spirituality is don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls that do. That is not Christianity. God has always been about our hearts. He's always been about the sin that resides within. And if we might by some means become pure, such that we can live with Him, and dwell with Him, and know Him. Jesus says in our text this morning, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus will go on in this sermon to say, don't talk to me about, you ha- about how you haven't murdered. If you've been angry in your heart towards your brother, don't talk to me about how you haven't committed adultery with your neighbor's wife if you've lusted in your heart. When he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, he's trying to contrast the religion of the Bible with the phaco religion of the Pharisees. My friend, God is after your heart. So here you are, you're Jesus' disciples, you're there with him on the mountain, your religious leaders have been teaching you that external conformity to the law is all that matters, but now Jesus is telling you, I want your heart. I'm interested in purity in the inner man. When these disciples thought of purity for their childhood on up through adolescence, they thought primarily of food. They thought primarily of plates. They thought of when and how to wash their hands. But Jesus is telling them the heart has always been the issue. The religion that I teach is not merely a matter of externals. It's purity of heart that I require. This is the problem of purity. Consider with me secondly the provision of purity, the provision 
of purity. I told you we'll spend a longer time on the first two points. Now, this is crucial. This is part of the essence of Christianity that you must understand. The Bible teaches that we have a purity problem. God is pure, and I am impure, but I must be pure also. If I am to escape His judgment and to dwell with Him forever in perfect paradise, something needs to be done with my sin and my uncleanness and my impurity if I'm ever to be accepted by God. Now, the Bible teaches that the solution to our purity problem is not going to come from within. It must occur within, but it's not going to arise from within. Now, the solution of our purity problem must come from outside of us, but it must be acted upon us, within us. Uh, this is why, friends, especially if, if you're here this morning, you recognize you're not a Christian, and, and maybe you have no interest in becoming a Christian. Well, I at least want you to understand what it is we preach and teach accurately, and that you not continue in your life under some delusion or false notion of what Christianity is all about. We do not believe that we can attain to this kind of purity that is needed through moralism. That is, by externally, if we just make a lot of good choices and do the right thing, and if our good outweighs our bad, that's how we're going to solve the purity problem. It's not going to be through religious formalism. So in this sense, we would differ with many of the more superstitious wings of the Roman Catholic Church that will prescribe to you, if you sin, a series of penitential works that will involve repeating certain incantations over and over again. We don't think by those means we can become right with God or can cleanse our inner impurity. We don't think that it will come through a regimen of therapy or counseling or some program of self-actualization. No, we need to be cleansed within by someone from without. And this is exactly what God does. If we are to be cleansed, if we are to be made pure, God Himself must act to solve our purity problem. And this is what the Scriptures tells us has happened. Isaiah 1.18, the Lord says, come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. God, in promising the new covenant, the coming age of the Messiah, in Ezekiel 36, 25, says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. This is regeneration on the greatest scale. God is going to cleanse us. He's going to wash us. In the new covenant, He will take away our heart of stone. He'll give to us a pure heart of flesh, and He will put His Spirit within us to cause us to walk in purity, to be careful to obey His rules and His statutes, which means I can become clean, and you can become clean. You can become new. You can become pure. God is willing to wash us and cleanse us and purify us. But He doesn't just do that by pronouncing these words over us. 
He doesn't do it by snapping his fingers. How is it that this purification will take place? How will we come to experience these benefits of the new covenant where we can be cleansed and washed from all our impurity? And this is Christianity's answer. This is the gospel's answer. It is through the blood of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke 22:20. at the communion table, the Lord's Supper, the Lord says this, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. All that cleansing that was promised, that washing, that new heart, pure motives, comes through the blood of Christ. This is the new covenant in my blood. Matthew 26, 28, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Please turn, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 10. To Hebrews chapter 10. I don't know of a text in the Bible that is more clear about how it is impure people can become pure before a just and holy God than Hebrews 10. Please follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1. Hebrews 10, verse 1. The writer of the Hebrews is putting together the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament and the coming of Christ. The theme of the book of Hebrews is that Christ is better. Jesus is better than the old covenant which is done away with. Here's what Hebrews 10 says. For since the law speaking of the law of Moses, has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect or make clean or make pure or make right those who draw near. What's he saying? You have these priests that would offer these sacrifices again and again and again and again. Blood spilt every day. And he's saying those sacrifices couldn't make you clean. They were shadows of what was to come. Verse 2, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Verse 8, when he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These were offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, that is the first covenant, in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He's washed us. He's cleansed us. He's made us perfect in His sight through His sacrifice. Now watch this. Verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us 
For after saying, and he quotes from Jeremiah 31, the promise of the new covenant, says this, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Do you see what just happened? What's our purity problem according to Psalm 24? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Who can stand there? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. But I don't got him. How will I stand in the holy place? Therefore, brothers, verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, a pure heart, a right heart, cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean. There it is what Ezekiel prophesied, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What is the text saying and what am I up here hollering about? Jesus makes me clean. His blood washes away every stain of sin. As John said it in 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. How can I be pure in heart? How can I have clean hands and a pure heart and dwell in the presence of God? It is by believing on Jesus Christ and His blood which cleanses us from all sins. What's the provision of purity, God has made provision for us through His Son such that we can truly be pure in heart. You, my friend, can be made pure. You can be made clean through what Jesus Christ has done. That is God's provision and His only provision for our purity problem. The provision is none other than the blood of Jesus Christ which cleanses the heart from every stain of sin. This is how a man or a woman can truly become pure in heart through God's provision of purity. Blessed are the pure in heart. And how might one become pure? It's through the blood of Christ. Now, much more briefly, consider with me number three, the practice of purity. The problem of purity, God is clean, I'm not. He's pure, I'm not. He demands purity. The provision of purity, the blood of Jesus Christ that makes us spotless and clean and pure before God. Now thirdly, the practice of purity. Very simply, what is true of the woman who is pure in heart? Blessed are the pure in heart. What's true of the woman who is pure in heart? She will make purity her practice. Out of the overflow of a pure heart that Christ has cleansed, she will walk in purity of life. 
Our outward conduct, brothers and sisters, proceeds out of what is in our hearts. Our outward purity is to be a manifestation, even a proof of our inward purity. For all those who are cleansed and who are made pure in heart, who have turned from sin and been washed by the blood of Christ, they will inevitably walk in purity of life, quality of life that proceeds out of the heart. Remember that first text we read in Matthew 15, that's the simple logic. What makes a man or woman unclean? It's the unclean heart and all that proceeds out of that heart. When you see sin in the world and sin in your life, you're seeing the manifestation of uncleanness. Oh, but if the heart is cleansed, little by little, more and more, you'll find pure motives emerging, pure actions emerging, pure thoughts and speech and conduct. Jesus is not only preaching the gospel to us in this text, telling us how we can be washed and made clean through His blood, He is telling us also of the quality of life, the kind of life, the pure life, the blessed path that the disciples of the Lord Jesus should walk as those who are truly pure in heart. Well, what then should the practice of purity look like? What is a pure life look like? Simply put, it is a life lived in conformity to God's will. It's a life lived in obedience to Christ's commands, a life of righteousness and godliness and obedience. John Stott describes the pure man this way. He says, in his relations with both God and man, he's free from falsehood. So the pure in heart are the utterly sincere. Their whole life, public and private, is transparent before God and men. Their very heart, including their thoughts and motives, is pure unmixed with anything devious, ulterior, or base. Hypocrisy and deceit are abhorrent to them. They are without guile. The man or woman who's pure in heart will walk in a newfound purity of life. Not perfectly. So appreciated the encouragement of our brother Kurt in his prayer this morning, the prayer of confession. We have been made clean. But we find often we can still get dirty again. We need to be washed We need fresh grace, fresh forgiveness. And more and more as we experience true purity of heart, we will walk in moral purity. There are people here, you've testified to this, many here who before coming to Christ, your heart and mind were full of all kinds of blasphemies and corrupt thoughts and lust and greed and perversion. And you have experienced this, haven't you? A renewed mind and a renewed heart there's something bright and clean and beautiful that is emerging within me by the grace of God. How'd that happen? The Lord purified your heart. He washed you and made you clean. And He gave you His Spirit, who Ezekiel tells us will cause us to walk in God's statutes. We will be given a will to obey His Word. Of course, our pure conduct does not become the grounds of our hope. Our hope is in the blood of Christ to cleanse us from sin. But as we have been cleansed, as we have been purified by the blood of Christ, we want to live and walk in purity. 1 John 3 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. Now, see what John's saying. He's saying, one day I'm going to be just like Jesus. 
that day's coming. So what does he then do? So for now I'll sit on my hands or I'll sin that grace may abound and I'll really look forward to the day when I'll finally be pure. No, he doesn't say that. He says, verse 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. In other words, D.A. Carson says, for the pure in heart, their present efforts are consistent with their future hope. Are you readying yourself for that day? I want to begin even now to walk in the kind of purity I will walk in perfectly when I see him as he is. Point number four, and we'll close here. We've seen the problem of purity, the provision of purity, the practice of purity. Now, fourthly, the prize of purity. My outlines were getting very long and abstruse. I hope you're proud of me. I've tried really hard with this outline. The prize of purity. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That is the great prize of purity, to see God, to stand in His presence as Isaiah did, but pure, washed, clean. There is, of course, a present tense dimension to this promise. It is true, Christian, for you that as you more and more walk in purity, you will see God more and more. You will see Him by faith. Faith is nothing other than the eyesight of the heart. We see God now by faith, and it is true. The more and more you walk in cleanness and righteousness and obedience and purity, the more you will experience communion and fellowship with God. And the inverse is true. The more you walk in darkness, the more you walk in sin, the more you allow obstacles into your life to fellowship with God, the less you will see of Him, the less you will experience of the warmth of fellowship. The whole book of 1 John in some ways tells us this very thing. Some of you here this morning, you may be stalled out in your Christian walk. You wish you had more of God. Well, could it be that there are some obstacles that are erected in the way of greater fellowship through your sin? through some uncleanness and some impurity that you need to do away with. Don't be surprised if your sight of God and your taste of Him seems faint and dim, if you have a bad conscience, if you're walking in sin. But know this, the more you pursue purity, the more you will see of God in the here and now, the more you will know Him. But I think there is especially a future orientation to this promise. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall. It's coming. They will one day see God. It means that one day we'll stand before Him in perfect righteousness and perfect purity, and we will see Him face to face, not through a glass dimly. We'll see Him with resurrected eyes. Listen again to Lloyd-Jones. The doctor has a word for us this morning. He says, This is surely the most amazing thing that has ever been said to man, that you and I, such as we are, pressed with all the problems and troubles of this modern world, are going to see Him face to face. 
If we but grasped this, it would revolutionize our lives. You and I are meant for the audience chamber of God. You and I are being prepared to enter into the presence of the King of Kings. Do you believe it? Do you know it as true of you? Do you realize that a day is coming when you are going to see the blessed God face to face? Not as in a glass darkly, but face to face. Surely the moment we grasp this, everything else pales into insignificance. You and I are going to enjoy God, to spend our eternity in His glorious and eternal presence. Read the book of Revelation and listen to the redeemed of the Lord as they praise Him and ascribe all glory to Him. The blessedness is inconceivable beyond our imagination, and we are destined for that. The pure in heart shall see God, nothing less than that. And then he adds, how foolish we are to rob ourselves of these glories that are here held out before our wondering gaze. Friends, what a promise. What a promise. That all those made pure through the blood of Christ, and who thus, therefore, walk in purity, they will see God. And what an incentive to purity. What an incentive. Some of you are ensnared and tempted by pornography, men and women. What do you need in the moment when you're tempted to go to that broken cistern, to grab the device, to mash the button, the link? Well, you need God's law. You do need God's law. People will sometimes say the threat of guilt is is no proper motivation for a Christian. I completely disagree with that. I don't want to sin against my Lord. His law is right and good. I won't do this thing. But what you need as much, if not more, is a greater pleasure that you're living for. I want to see God. I don't need this. I want God. I want to be pure. I want to see Him. I don't need that. If by pursuing purity I could have more of my God. That's what I'm living for. And this applies to a host of other evils among us. Slander, lying, other addictions, all kinds of other forms of impurity. I say no to this because I choose. I want God. I want to see Him. What an incentive to purity of life, to obedience. I want God, and thus I choose purity. For those who have had their hearts sprinkled clean by the blood of Christ and who walk in the purity of life He calls them to, they will, Jesus says, see God. Friends, what if we always lived in this awareness? We will see the Lord. Job lived in this awareness. Do you remember what Job said? Yet in my flesh I will see God. He lost everything. But he was stabilized by this promise. I'm going to see the Lord. The day's coming. I lose my wife. I lose my kids. I lose my friends. I lose my house. Oh, but I'll see God, it's coming. 
Paul lived in this hope always. The sufferings of this present age, not worthy to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed. One day we will always be with the Lord. The pure in heart will see God. And they were enabled to endure anything. It shaped how they saw their trials, their sufferings. Such people have joy that no trial can rob them of. They are in the truest sense invincible and unbreakable. It was a joy out of reach of this world's sorrows, out of the reach of oppression and abuse, out of the reach of cancer, out of the reach of the disappointments of this life, out of the reach of trials and tribulations, out of the reach of death and decay. We will see God and nothing can change this. Friends, may God help us to pursue purity of heart and may help us to live always in the awareness that if we do, we shall see God. That day is fast approaching when we will always be with the Lord and we will live with Him then in perfect, unmixed, undiluted purity for all eternity. Let's pursue purity now. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, for those who have been purified by the blood of your Son, who live now by your Spirit and the purity that you call us to, this is our hope. This is all we want. We want you, our God. We want to see you. We want to know you. We want to have you. We want to taste and see that the Lord is good. Do away, please, Father, by your Spirit's help with every obstacle to us enjoying you to the full. Cleanse us and help us remove from us our sin. Take it as far as the east is from the west. We would be pure in heart that we might see you. Please, Father, for all those under the sound of my voice who are pure in heart already, who have been cleansed by the blood of your Son and are seeking by your Spirit's help to walk in that purity. Oh, Lord, please help us all to live always in this abiding hope. The day is coming when we will see God Give to us, please, a prevailing God consciousness, a prevailing eternity consciousness, an awareness that eternal life is coming when we will be forever with the Lord. And may it make the things of earth grow strangely dim. May we cease to be distracted by piddly things. May we be caught up in our hope and live in light of that hope. And may it move us and impel us to walk then in purity and in faithfulness and in obedience. May we seek to be pure even as He is pure. And Father, when we fail and when we sin, please fulfill Your Word. Cleanse us afresh. Be faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, if there is any here and surely there are those here who are still living in their sin and in their native impurity and have been looking to some change of circumstances, maybe a new relationship, maybe another high, maybe a better day, maybe some promotion, something, to 
provide them the satisfaction that they so badly want and need. To give to them the kind of cleansing and purity that they desire. Please now, Lord, frustrate all of their efforts. Shut them up to Christ. Direct them to Him, the one in whom is found all purity and cleanness and righteousness, the one in whom is life and light. And may they each one experience greater degrees of purity and forgiveness and deliverance from sin and guilt and shame than they ever thought possible. Do this. You can do this. We ask you to do this, please. In Jesus' name, amen.